0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of Yahweh to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh, and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. And the king said to the man of God, entreat now the favor of Yahweh your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated Yahweh, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of Yahweh, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he had come to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me, and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you, or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with you, in this place. For it was said to me by the word of Yahweh, You shall neither eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah Thus says Yahweh, because you have disobeyed the word of Yahweh, and have not kept the command that Yahweh your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet, who had brought him back from the way, heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of Yahweh. Therefore Yahweh has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that Yahweh spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey, and the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel, and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among the people. Any who would he ordained to be priests of the high places, and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and and to destroy it from the face of the earth. me. I need you to see something. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 787 of this podcast Today is Friday, December 29th, 2023, which means that this is New Year's Eve, Eve, Eve. Not much time left in the year. We'll just put it that way. This year is coming to a close in very short order. And as we get to tomorrow's episode and the next day's episode, I intend to talk about two things in particular. One, the books that I read this year. That's kind of important to me, and I think it can be beneficial to you, and hopefully you get some ideas for books to read, but also you get to benefit from my having read all of these books. But I also want to talk about the highlights and the lowlights of this year, things that I learned and things that I regret, uh, quite honestly, things that I'm happy about that happened this year. I'm thankful to God for having blessed us in, and also things that I don't think I handled as well as I should have, or I didn't relate to them as well as I should have, and I hope to learn and do better. I hope to improve and to be wiser for it in the coming year. By God's grace, we will talk about all of that in tomorrow's episode and the episode after, Lord willing, we'll live and do this or that. But for today, we have First Kings chapter 13, which I read at the top of the episode, also We'll be talking later in this episode about Trump being off the ballot and back on the ballot for the primaries in the state of Colorado and in the state of Maine. Apparently, that's a thing, too, now that the state of Maine is saying a very similar thing to what the Supreme Court of Colorado recently ruled. We'll talk about it. We'll also talk a little bit more about neoconservatism, what it is, and where did it come from? Is this new conservatism actually conservative? We'll get to that at the very tail end of this episode. But first, First Kings chapter 13. It starts with a man of God coming out of Judah. What's his name? Why is he coming out of Judah? Well, we don't have his name, but we have the why. We have the why and the where from. He's coming out of Judah, which if you'll remember is now being ruled by the son of Solomon, the grandson of David. Solomon worshipped the gods of his foreign wives, and so the judgment from Yahweh, God of Israel, God above all gods, having warned Solomon not to do that, the judgment is to take the kingdom away from Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, and to give it to Jeroboam except for judah judah is ruled by rehoboam he is king over just the tribe of judah but jeroboam is king over the rest of israel and yet jeroboam we found in the previous chapter so nervous is he about the israelites going to the temple and returning to rehoboam that he has golden calves made and says to israel behold your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Worship these instead of Yahweh. Why does Jeroboam do such a stupid thing? Because he's thinking only in terms of the human element. He's thinking in purely pragmatic terms about his political situation. And it says outright, he's afraid that if the people of Israel return to Rehoboam because they're going to worship Yahweh in the temple that Solomon built, They will kill Jeroboam, and he doesn't want that. Uh, For obvious reasons, he doesn't want to be killed, and yet he's bringing judgment on himself. He's bringing judgment on Israel when it's God himself. This God, Jeroboam, is turning the people of Israel away from true worship of who put Jeroboam in the place of being king over Israel. It's a pretty astonishing lack of self-awareness and lack of awareness of God on Jeroboam's part, but then we have, again, chapter 13 starting, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah. Why? By the word of Yahweh to Bethel. He comes out of Judah by the word of Yahweh to Bethel. And the very next thing, Jeroboam is standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man who's not named, he's just the man of God, he could be anybody, doesn't really matter. The important thing is not who he is, but who God is, and that God has given him a message, given him a mission. The man cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. And we'll just pause for a moment to appreciate that this is intense. (laughs) This is pretty intense stuff. This is not inclusivity. This is not live and let live. This is not coexist. This is not what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. You live your truth. I'll live my truth. You do you, boo. This is No, thus says Yahweh, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places, that is the priests of the false gods, the foreign gods. Not just are they going to be repressed, but they're going to be killed and they're going to have their bodies, their bones burned on this altar. They think that they're in charge. They think that they're in control because they're asserting dominance over Israel and over Israel's God is by way of worshiping the foreign gods. God will show them. But then the next thing, verse 3, he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign that Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down. And what you've got to love about this Is it's baked into the equation that the easiest way to dismiss this whole thing is just to say, You're a nobody. You're just making stuff up. Who are you? We don't know you. Get out of here. You're crazy. We're not listening to you. Let me tell you, the man says, what the sign is that this is actually God who spoke. I'm just the messenger. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Now, verse 4, we see an allergic response on the part of Jeroboam. When the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand against him from the altar. So Jeroboam is at this altar. He stretches out his hand, saying, seize him. Who's he talking to? Soldiers? priests, servants, administrators, it doesn't say. Whoever it is, Jeroboam expects to be obeyed here. He's the king, after all. And who is this nobody coming out of Judah confronting a king? Who does he think he is? This is the thing that Jeroboam was afraid of, most afraid of, so afraid of, that he got stupid and he had two golden calves built or fashioned or assembled or crafted however you want to put it he was afraid that worship of yahweh would be the means of his undoing or that is to say he did not expect to be on the right side of yahweh here he is at this altar and this altar is not an altar that is dedicated to worship of yahweh and yet yahweh will see to it that he gets honor in what happens on that altar with regards to that altar. Jeroboam trying to shut this guy up, incensed or afraid either way, he stretches out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against the man of God, it says it dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Oh, that's scary. Again, this is intense stuff. Our brains might Lock up here. If we have unbelief and this is just too weird and it's too different, it's too bizarre, and so we just pass right over it. How dramatic this is. The man of God isn't even named. His name is apparently not of sufficient concern for it to be told to us it doesn't matter what his name is, because this is Yahweh speaking. He comes out of Judah, that's interesting. Judah, where people still worship Yahweh at the temple Solomon built. Solomon was allowed to build by Yahweh to the name of Yahweh. But Jeroboam is king over the rest of Israel because Yahweh took the kingdom away from the descendants of Solomon. And Jeroboam has been given the authority. And so how can it be that Jeroboam is made king by God's decree, by God's sovereign will, And yet here's Jeroboam being confronted by some no-name coming out of Judah. Some man of God, but he's not even named, coming out of Judah. Is that how things are supposed to work? This is quite a lot of upset and disruption. And guess what? It's what's needed. (laughs) What's needed is disruption when the ruler of a people and a people are headed for destruction. You need disruption. In fact, it's a mercy. It's the grace of God that there would be an interruption, that there would be an upset here. Jeroboam is trying to reclaim this situation. He's going to get the last word, or so he thinks. He's going to take back control of the situation. Stretching out his hand from the altar, he says, seize him. And when he stretches out his hand, it dries up. Now, I want to know what this looked like. I have an imagination, and my imagination goes to almost like a mummified hand. His hand was totally normal, fleshy, hydrated, muscled, and then it dried up. I think it dried up as if a very rapid and very localized case of mummification affected Jeroboam's hand that he had stretched out. And oh, by the way, it's not just inanimate objects that are going to be proofs now that this is Yahweh who has spoken. Some no name man of God out of Judah disrupting a religious event at this altar cannot just in and of himself cause Jeroboam's hand to dry up so that he can't even draw it back. That's scary stuff. That's spooky. I think it implies, too, that Jeroboam wanted to draw his hand back. But he couldn't. He's trying to, but he can't because it's dried up. And it's basically frozen in position, pointed like it were some long dead man's hand, like it was some long dead man's arm that's stiff because it's mummified. In order for the muscles and the sinews to work, there has to be hydration, there has to be life in the hand, and in the arm. It's like a part of Jeroboam has just suddenly been made dead, really. Now it says in verse five, the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. How did this happen? Did God just cause the thing to topple over directly? Nobody was touching it. Nobody was doing anything. Or as I suspect, again, this is my imagination, so take it with a grain of salt. I will too, I promise. I imagine that Jeroboam, horrified that his hand has just been mummified before his own eyes and he can't even draw it back, I think he starts stumbling around and to try and catch himself or because he's lost his balance, I think he topples the altar over himself to where he himself is the one who tears down the altar. Whether he chose to, Or God put him in motion. The effect is the same. It proves what the man of God who came out of Judah had just said. This will be the proof that Yahweh has spoken. The Lord works in mysterious ways. What can we say? But verse 6, Jeroboam's tune very quickly changes. He says to the man of God, "Entreat now the favor of Yahweh, your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God does what? Tells him, Yeah, right. You're on your own, buddy. Forget you. You think that was bad. Just wait until what's about to happen to you happens to you. You haven't seen anything yet. Is that the response? No. No, that's not the response. Far from it. The response when Jeroboam asks the man of God to pray for him that his hand might be restored, the response of the man of God is to ask God and for God to answer the prayer of the man of God it says the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. Verse seven, the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. Whether that was genuine, whether this is the beginning of a change of heart on the part of Jeroboam, he's seeing the error of his ways. He wants to talk more with this man of God. He wants to amend his ways. It doesn't say, and we don't know. Whether this is a trap Like, ooh, I need to recover a little bit. But then if I see an opportunity, I want to pay you back for this humiliation. Or I want to try and save face now before the people, because I've got to find a way to salvage this. I'm on the wrong side of this. The very thing that I was afraid of happening, namely that I would not be a worshiper of Yahweh and that would bring judgment on me just as it brought judgment on the house of David. I want time to think. I want to figure out how to salvage this, at least from the standpoint of public perception. It doesn't matter what the reasons are, whatever Jeroboam's motives. The man of God says to him, verse eight, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of Yahweh saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now, here, so far, this man of God from Judah is a stud. Wow. You know, he's doing exactly what it is that God has told him to do, and we don't even know his name. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of faith. If Judah and Israel just almost came to blows in the previous chapter, and it was divine intervention, telling the men of Israel, and the men of Judah, nope, you guys are not going to fight. This is from me. This division is from me. That's what prevented massive bloodshed and a civil war that God himself had brought this division and told them so through another man of God, Shemaiah. In this chapter, it takes a lot of guts, it seems to me, to come out of Judah and to go to Israel and to confront the king of Israel as a man of God from Judah. And yet that's exactly what The man of God does here. It also is pretty remarkable that one, this man of God is authenticated in what he's saying because the altar is torn down in short order. And also the king's hand is dried up as he points, as he raises it against this man of God. This is pretty remarkable stuff that this man of God, whoever he is, also prays for the restoration of Jeroboam's hand and God answers that prayer. To top it all off, again, this guy, what a unsung hero of the faith. When Jeroboam wants to bring him home and be host and reward him, this man of God says, even if you gave me half your house, I could not, I would not go with you because God has told me not to. God has told me to not eat bread or drink water or return by the way, that I came. If only that were the end of his story, if only that were it, he would have finished really, really well. And it's not. And what happens next in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, what happens next in this chapter is arguably even weirder, given what happened in the first part of the chapter. But I think I can make some sense of it. I think I can understand this myself. If you understand it better... Please help me to be wise. But what happens next? That is the final word on this man of God. It says in verse 11, now an old prophet lived in Bethel and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king and their father said to them, which way did he go? Now let's just pause here for a moment and wonder why, right? You have a man of God coming out of Judah, and you have an old prophet living in Bethel. Why is the old prophet who lives in Bethel not the one who went and confronted the king? Why didn't God send the old prophet who lived in Bethel to tell Jeroboam this prophecy about Josiah and about the tearing down of the altar and about the priest's bones to these foreign gods and how they would be offered up on this altar of pagan worship. Why isn't it the old prophet who lives right there? Why a man from Judah? I mean, it doesn't say, but maybe the old prophet is wondering that. Maybe that's where his head is at. Maybe this old prophet is jealous. and Maybe that's why he asks his sons, which way did he go? And he goes in pursuit. He's going to go find this man of God and talk with him. So he does. He goes And he finds the man, and he asks, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? The man says, I am. The old prophet says to the man of God from Judah, Come home with me and eat bread. Now, why does he say that? Why is this old prophet there on behalf of God? There's a question. Now, bear in mind, when it says in verse 11, They, the sons of this old prophet, also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. That is, the man of God had spoken to the king. It would seem as though they told their father, the old prophet in Bethel, that God had commanded the man of God, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. And so what's this old prophet up to when he goes and he asks, are you the man of God? And the answer is yes. And he says, come home with me and eat bread. Oh, you mean eat bread like the man of God told Jeroboam God had told him not to? This is kind of messed up. What kind of a prophet are you? Maybe you're the kind of old prophet who, when you get to feeling a little jealous because it wasn't you, you live right here. And when word gets around that God didn't have you go and speak to Jeroboam, or maybe God did tell you to go and speak with Jeroboam, but you didn't. When word gets around, people are going to say, "Wow, well, the Lord is not with him, perhaps. But in case there's any question, right? In case... Maybe this part wasn't told to the old prophet by his sons when they were telling the story of the man of God confronting Jeroboam. You know, they told him some of what the man of God had told to Jeroboam, but they didn't tell him the part about God having told the man of God, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way, in case it was unknown to the old prophet when he extended this invite. He, very next, is brought up to speed. Verse 16, the man of God says, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of Yahweh, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. He said to him, that is the old prophet says to the man of God, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. (laughs) It was a lie. (laughs) It wasn't true. Verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. What happens next? Then after the word of Yahweh comes to the prophet who had brought him back, thereby proving that God could certainly speak through this prophet. Thus says Yahweh, because you have disobeyed the word of Yahweh, And have not kept the command that Yahweh your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. You may wonder about after this man of God from Judah leaves, why it is that he was able to do the faithful thing, the obedient thing, confronting the king Jeroboam in that way, knowing the good that he ought to do and doing it, and then knowing what God had told him not to do and not doing it, resisting twice, but then a third time he relented. It just had to be the right sort of a lie to persuade him to do what he wasn't supposed to do. Why is the lion sent? Why doesn't God speak to the man of God to tell him he's lying to you? I did not say that. I did not send an angel to him. He's lying. This is a trap. It doesn't say. And yet, he should have known better. And that's the point. And it's not just the point with regards to the man of God out of Judah. It's also the point with regards to Jeroboam. Jeroboam knew better. He knew what he was doing. He was fully accountable for his actions. He had coming to him what he got. He knew he had no intention of being on the right side of the worship of Yahweh, even though Yahweh had made him king over Israel, over the ten tribes with only Judah left to the descendants of David and Solomon, Rehoboam in particular. Jeroboam knew better. And this man of God out of Judah knew better. And yet, you actually see too, it goes both ways. It goes both directions. Somebody being from Judah, somebody being from Israel, even having been used of God to exercise authority in a civil magistrate sort of a way as king, or in a more spiritual capacity as a prophet, as a man of God. Judah, Israel, it's all the same in one regard. God can use them for a time, and then if they are disobedient, if they do what they ought not to, what God told them not to do, if they don't do what they ought to do, what God told them to do, then there are no exceptions made. Like they get a free pass because they did some good stuff that God told them to do because God had used them just earlier, just previous, therefore they could do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it. No, it doesn't work that way. All the more rather than less because God raised them up when they disobeyed, even when they were being tested and they had just been faithful before this. It seems to me as though the moral of the story is don't get presumptuous. Don't get a big head. Don't get too big for your britches. And think that just because God did use you for a good purpose, for a time, that that means you can now be wicked and nothing will happen. As if God in heaven is saying, I owe you one. I'll let it slide this time. No big deal. It seems to me as though that's at least part of the moral of the story. All scripture being breathed out by God and profitable. That's why this is in here. When it is, how it's presented Who's the man of God out of Judah? It doesn't matter. Who's God? That's more to the point. Who's Jeroboam? Who cares? Who's God? I mean, we should care. As much as the scripture gives us detail, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Every jot and tittle, every word is significant here. Every detail and what details are not included is also significant. But the more pressing issue is, what did God want the man of God to do next? What was God's purpose? for telling him, don't eat bread, don't drink water, don't return the way you came. What was God's purpose in that? It doesn't say, and God didn't have to give an explanation. All the man of God from Judah needed to know was that this is what God had told him, and he knew it. He did know it. He demonstrated twice. You could say, well, he passed the test twice, but listen, he demonstrated twice that he really did know what God was telling him not to do. And then he did it because somebody else applied the right kind of pressure, the right kind of leverage, but it was a lie. And that happens. That's another thing for us to recognize. Sometimes people who are prophets, sometimes people who have a reputation for piety and for getting words from the Lord, sometimes they lie. And that's just what it is. Sometimes when they tell you this is from God, it's not true. And you shouldn't believe them. Sometimes maybe it is envy, jealousy, It's their own sinful nature. They're doing what they ought not to be doing, or they want to do what they ought not to do. They're not doing what they ought to do. They want to do what they ought not to do, whether it's one or the other. First and foremost, if God has spoken, and you know what God has said, and this doesn't match what God has said, this thing that somebody else is saying, stick to what God said. Don't be so easily taken in as this man of God out of Judah was. Somebody tells you to do the opposite of what God told you to do, and you do, and then you suffer for it. Is that what we want? No, surely not. Surely not. But enough of 1 Kings chapter 13. For now, let's move into actually not just the latest with regards to the 2024 election primaries in the state of Colorado, in the state of Maine. By no means are those the only two states. But we do have some updates. Also, as I said before, we'll talk about neoconservatism. Is it actually conservative? Is it actually new? Before we talk about any of those, I want to talk about my own aches and pains personally a little bit. And here, I am not trying to throw a pity party for myself. And I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me. And I don't want to waste your time with a recounting of (laughs) things that are entirely my concern. But let me tell you a story and then I'll tell you what is occurring to me and how it affects what I am talking about with the rest of this episode, with the rest of the content here, actually for the last several days, because this has been hurting for the last several days. Over the weekend, this past weekend, I started to have some weird pain in my back, lower back, right about where the spine connects with the hips, and I started having pain on my right side, that hip, and also I started having some weird spasms every now and then, just out of the blue. No warning, but suddenly I'd get this shooting pain in my knee on the right side, and it was the weirdest thing. I'd be totally fine one second, and then the very next, I'd get this shooting pain, And then it affected the way that I walked, the way that I stood. Maybe that was a cause. Maybe that was an effect for how it's been feeling the rest of this week. But my back is really bothering me to the point that all around my midsection, there's just this tenderness and it hurts to almost even have my shirt rub up against my skin all the way around my middle. And again, on the right side, especially, that leg, that hip, it's like if I'm not standing in just the right way and being very still, or if I'm not sitting in just the right way, if I'm not lying in just the right way, I feel it. And it occurs to me that this could be a herniated disc. I haven't gone and seen a doctor. I've talked with my wife about going and seeing a chiropractor, for instance, and seeing what they might tell me. but. It occurred to me as I was doing a little bit of research myself yesterday, because I really don't want to go to the doctor. I don't like going to the doctor for anything. It occurs to me that it could be that while I was coughing here recently, having been recently sick and trying to clear my throat, having some pretty intense coughing fits actually, as I was able to cough productively, you know, you get the last little bits of whatever it is that's croupy in your lungs, and you're trying to expel that. And I was getting into these just pretty intense coughing fits. I wonder if I threw my back out. I wonder if I have a herniated disc. Not to say I haven't ever hurt my back before. Not to say it couldn't be something else. But the way that my back hurts in relation to how I was getting the weird spasms in my leg and in my knee, it could be that. And I'm not asking anybody to, again, make this into their day because that's not necessary. That wouldn't be helpful to you. And it wouldn't be particularly helpful to me either. You can pray for me. I would appreciate that. And if you have ideas and you say, oh man, it really sounds like such and such, and you might want to get that checked out and talk with so and so, that's fine, right? I won't turn that down. I'm not saying don't if you really have a great idea. But I bring it up for one special reason. With regards to First Kings chapter 13 and the effect that a dried up hand has on Jeroboam, his tune very quickly changes from seize him and then what, right? Then what were you going to instruct your people to do to the man of Judah, the man of God from Judah next? His tune quickly changes from seize him to please pray for me with a shriveled hand, with a dried up hand. For that matter the tune changes for the man of God from, no, I cannot eat any bread or drink any water or go back the way that I came because God told me not to. The tune changes with a little bit of a nudge from this prophet in Bethel. An angel from the Lord told me that, yes, you can, actually. I've got updated instructions. The plan has changed. Trust me. Sometimes, that is to say, Both pleasure and pain can change our direction. And the reason I bring this up is as we're talking about other things and just thinking on an individual level, as we're trying to understand what motivates other people, how they operate, why they do the things that they do, why they don't do the things that they don't do, we need to appreciate how influential both pleasure and pain are in motivating the vast majority of people. If you tell people that they can expect there's going to be pain, and they really do believe you, there's going to be pain in a certain course of action, they're less likely to take that course of action. Even if it's good, even if they, just a moment ago, were really wanting to, you tell them it's going to be painful, there's a high probability of pain, even if it's not fatal, and they will at least second guess whether they want to do that thing. They have to be really persuaded that The benefits outweigh the costs. People don't like pain and it can affect mood. It can affect concentration. It can affect how much you do, what kinds of things that you do. Say, for instance, if I do have a herniated disc, I am walking around more slowly. I am talking differently, even because I find that I bring a lot of my body to bear when I'm speaking, when I'm talking, and some of the muscles in my back that I bring to bear when I am speaking normally, they're tweaked or they're tweaking this herniated disc, if that's what it is. And so all of a sudden I want to talk differently. I want to talk in such a way as to not feel that little twang of pain. I may be less patient than I should be because I'm so focused on not moving in a direction that's going to bring more discomfort. And I may forget a certain detail, or I may not listen or pay attention to something that I should have caught. And that's concerning and that gets to be stressful as well. And so pain can be a motivator, just like pleasure can be a motivator. People want to feel good in a certain way. And so what will they be willing to do? They weren't interested in doing a certain thing because it's like, yeah, whatever. And then you say, ah, but you'll get this reward. will not that be nice? If that's the kind of a reward that they would like, like say, for instance, come back to my house, Jeroboam says to the man of God from Judah, come back to my house and I will reward you. Except that God had told him to not. Who wouldn't want to take up the offer? Yeah, absolutely. I'll come back with you and be rewarded by you. Yeah, that sounds great. But that is to say that not always should we change course when there is the potential for pain. If we maintain course or there's the potential for pleasure or enjoyment or reward being dangled in front of us if we change course. Sometimes don't get me wrong. The Lord does use the expectation of do this and it will go well for you. Don't do this or else there will be negative consequences, but then that's the critical distinction. Is this coming from God or is this a test when somebody else introduces a threat of punishment to get you to stop doing what it is that God has called you to do. If somebody introduces a bribe to induce you to do something else other than what God told you to do, God told you to not do this thing, and now you're going to do this thing because somebody dangled a little bit of a reward in front of you, the promise of pleasure. The test can't be, is there pain involved? Is there pleasure involved? The test has to be, is this from God? Is this a good thing for me to do, according to God? Is this good for me to not do the other thing, according to God? All other things being equal, generally speaking, trying to reduce pain, that's fine. Now, something's off if you enjoy pain, if you think you're doing the right thing anytime you're hurting, or if you think that pain and suffering automatically make you more virtuous. That something's twisted. Something's twisted in your rationale there. Just like you're not necessarily doing the right thing if you're prospering. It could be that you took a bribe. This was the price for your silence or for your passivity or for your participation, for your affirmation. And if you're suffering, you may be suffering for righteousness sake or you might just be suffering. It might be that this is a fallen sinful world and that you have a body and a circumstance that's affected by the Sin of man. You know, 3,000 years, roughly, thereabouts, of biblical insight, and then before that, even, perhaps, oral tradition, or maybe it was written down, even earlier. The oldest materials, maybe they were written down, or maybe they were passed on from one generation to the next, through speech. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit bringing these things to mind. But in any event let's say six to 10,000 years of the effects of sin on man. Our bodies don't work quite like they did originally. They're not as resilient. They do age. Things do wear out. Or maybe they don't even wear out. Maybe just from the jump, they're off kilter. And so we get sick or we get injured more easily, more easily than we would have. You know, I was thinking about this. How silly it is, and honestly, a little bit embarrassing, if a coughing fit is what caused a slipped disc, a herniated disc. Here my oldest son, Josiah, is wrestling, and night after night, weekend after weekend, he's going and he's practicing two hours of conditioning and live wrestling and drills, or hours of driving to get to a tournament and then maybe five minutes of very intense physical exertion being put in all kinds of uncomfortable positions or trying to put the other person into all kinds of uncomfortable positions, but having to move very aggressively and be strong and also be flexible. And I think, wow, even just thinking about doing that, I'll probably throw my back out again. (laughs) All I did was cough. I got into a coughing fit and I threw my back out wow, how lame is that? I am not 16 going on 17 anymore. Like Josiah is 16 going on 17. He'll be 17 this summer. But then that isn't necessarily proof that somebody has done what they shouldn't have done. They're not doing what they should be doing. Maybe I should be more physically active than to be so easily injured with a coughing fit. Okay, sure. But it's not sin, right? It's not sin if I've been sitting too much for work I've been too stationary listening to audiobooks and podcasting and programming. That's not a sin. Maybe it was unwise, but all that is to say too, you know, this herniated discs entry at Mayo Clinic reads as follows, and I'll read just a little bit from the introduction for you. A herniated disc refers to a problem with one of the rubbery cushions called discs that sit between the bones that stack to make the spine. These bones are called vertebrae. You probably knew that. A spinal disc has a soft jelly-like center called a nucleus. The nucleus is encased in a tougher rubbery exterior known as the annulus. A herniated disc occurs when some of the nucleus pushes out through a tear in the annulus. A herniated disc is sometimes called a slipped disc or a ruptured disc. A herniated disc, which can occur in any part of the spine, most often occurs in the lower back, depending on Where the herniated disc is, it can result in pain, numbness, or weakness in an arm or a leg. Many people have no symptoms from a herniated disc. For people who do have symptoms, these symptoms tend to improve over time. Surgery is usually not needed to relieve the problem. Now, we'll just stop right there. That's quite enough. Like I said, I don't want to take up your whole day talking about what is quite possibly a slipped disc for me. But I bring this up to highlight something that's common to all of us. And that is that until you injure something like this or until it's not working the way that you expect it to and it lets you know and you all of a sudden are in pain or you're feeling quite a lot of discomfort or it's more challenging to do things that you kind of take for granted, talking for instance, I take for granted that I'm able to speak and now all of a sudden I'm having to work my vocal cords maybe with a little bit of a different emphasis using different supporting muscles, different core muscles than I typically do. God has so designed us and the world that we live in, that when everything's working the way that it should be, you probably aren't gonna notice how things were set up and how they were designed to work. It's only when we break something, when we tear something, when something slips, that's supposed to be right there, actually. It didn't slip very far, but it didn't need to. It was right here, and that meant that you didn't even notice it. You just took it for granted. And now it's slipped out a little bit over here, and now it's really letting you know. It's really bothering you. There's a lot of things like that. And can I just suggest to you that a lot of, in our modern day, how we feel if we're in pain and we're going to go to a doctor, and we trust that the doctor's been to school and the doctor should know how to diagnose what's wrong with us and what kind of a treatment plan to give us. You know, Do you need surgery? Well, if not, well, then I definitely want the doctor to tell me that because I don't want to go into surgery. Surgery is a scary thing. If I can just take some medicine and rest a little bit, do some simple exercises, put a little bit of this ointment on there, take some ibuprofen, and not lift lazy boys and carry them up the stairs like I did the other night, which was stupid, admittedly. That was really dumb, speaking of unwise. Versus wicked. It wasn't wicked, but it was unwise. And this was after I hurt <laughs> my back. I was like, ah, I'm feeling pretty good. I'll just carry this up the stairs. And in hindsight, why? right? Why? Why do that? But in our modern era, we will go to a doctor, we'll go to an expert, and we want the expert to tell us everything's going to be okay. Really. And maybe it's not okay, but everything's going to be okay. Just take two and call me in the morning. Or here's a prescription for some physical therapy, or here, I want you to say, ah, and, oh, yep, sure enough, you have such and such, and it should clear up in a week or so. Yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Avoid certain foods, get some good rest. You know, a doctor being more expert on paying attention to what most of us the rest of the time just take for granted, we should put more stock in God having... just paid attention he didn't go to medical school and get a really good grounding in how our bodies work No, 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 he designed them yeah he he designed our bodies in the first place he knows the number of hairs on our head but then he doesn't just know how our bodies physically work he also knows how we are supposed to function in relation to one another how we should function within the family unit how we should function within a community how a community should function in relation to a nation, how a nation's people should relate to their government, how their government should relate to the people, how one nation should relate to another nation. God knows these things. He is the utmost expert, and it's it's not just uh, folly like me carrying a lazy boy up the stairs after I threw my back out because I was feeling a little bit better that day. Like ah, it'll be fine. It's not that heavy. Now, it's not just folly. It is folly, but it's also wickedness on our part that we don't go to God with our problems. As individuals, as families, as communities, as a nation, we don't go to God and ask him to heal us and to forgive us. If we would turn from our sins, if we would seek his face and ask him for grace and for mercy and genuinely with our whole hearts, with our whole minds, with our whole soul, repent and turn away from our sins against him. He would hear from heaven and he would heal our land and he would forgive us our sins. And we should hope for that. We should pray for that. We should call for that. If the response is no response at all and it's stubbornness, then so be it. But at least we should be calling for it and we should ourselves, we should be praying for it. We should be wanting that to happen. Instead of like Jonah, if the people of Nineveh repent and judgment, destruction is averted, Jonah's sitting on the hill pouting about it. Let's not be like that. Let's hope and pray that there would be grace, that there would be forgiveness and restoration. For our first real news story of this episode, though, I draw your attention to Cardinal Pritchard's post at Not the Bee from December 28th. Sorry, Libs. Trump is back on the ballot in Colorado. Pritchard writes, it looks like Trump is back on the primary ballot in Colorado. Your dreams are crushed, I know, but keep your heads up. This is nothing compared to how November is going to feel. There's a quote, Colorado Republican Party filed on Wednesday asking the U.S. Supreme Court to look at the lower court's ruling that disqualified Trump from running on the presidential ballot in the state due to his role in the January 6th Capitol riot Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold announced that Trump will, for the time being, remain on the ballot, which goes to print on January 5th, unless the Supreme Court affirms the lower court's ruling or otherwise declines to take on the appeal. Technically, you've still got a chance, but don't count on it. The Supreme Court, to my knowledge, is not in the interest of taking the frontrunner off the ballot. Get your popcorn ready, folks. 2024 going to be lit. Now, At the same time, as there is that news, or pretty much right in the same ballpark, right within the same week, actually within the same day, (laughs) reporting from Daniel Chaitin over at the Daily Wire tells us that Maine, the state of Maine, you know, New England, kicks Trump off 2024 primary ballot. Shortly after Colorado put Donald Trump back on its 2024 primary ballot, a top Maine official announced the former president would be disqualified from her state's primary ballot. A ruling on Thursday from Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows found Trump's primary petition to be invalid on the view that he violated the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause due to his conduct leading up to the U.S. Capitol breach on January 6th, 2021. Bellows, a Democrat, shocker, also rejected a bid by Trump's legal team to get her to recuse herself from making a ruling on his eligibility amid multiple challenges to his candidacy. A flurry of 14th Amendment cases in other states, including Michigan, have been dismissed in court or remain active. One particular lawsuit in Colorado led to the state's Supreme Court last week kicking Trump off the primary ballot. But Trump was allowed to appear on Colorado's 2024 primary ballot on Thursday, at least for now, after the state's Republican Party asked the Supreme Court, to overturn a ruling that disqualified him, that is, the U.S. Supreme Court. It was not immediately clear how the High Court would respond. Many of the challenges against Trump hinge on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is widely viewed as being designed to block former officials from returning to public office after the Civil War if they joined the Confederacy. Trump and his allies have fought against the array of litigation. Quote, the state has interfered in the primary election by unreasonably restricting the party's ability to select its candidates, end quote, said the Colorado GOP's filing to the U.S. Supreme Court this week, quote, as a natural and inevitable result, the state has interfered with the party's ability to place on the general election ballot the candidate of its choice, and it has done so based on a subjective claim of insurrection the state lacks any constitutional authority to make, end quote, the filing added. Trump's legal team, sought to have Bellows recuse herself over concerns that social media posts showed bias against the former president. Quote, the secretary's expression of support for the view that January 6, 2021 constituted an insurrection and that President Trump was an insurrectionist is probative evidence of prejudgment and bias. End quote, they said in a filing on Wednesday. In her ruling on Thursday, Bellows denied the request for a recusal, saying it was untimely and insisted that she otherwise would have determined that she could preside over the matter without bias. Quote, my decision is based exclusively on the record before me, and it has in no way been influenced by my political affiliation or personal views about the events of January 6th, 2021, end quote. And does anybody believe that? Does anybody believe that? Particularly when there are pictures making the rounds of this very same Secretary of State for Maine posing with former President Barack Obama, current President Joe Biden, smiling. Both of them in the two pictures that I've seen, the one where she's with former President Barack Obama, both her and Barack Obama are smiling for the camera. She looks very pleased to be taking a picture with him. Also, the picture where she's posing with Joe Biden, both of them are smiling. Both of them look very pleased to be taking this picture together. She's a Democrat. She's not unbiased. She's not objective about this. If she were an independent, that would be one thing. If she were a Republican, that would be one thing. But even there, there's quite a lot of reasons for Democrats and Republicans to be biased against former President Donald Trump. And at this point, it's very difficult to imagine who could be regarded as impartial. If you support Donald Trump, then people will say, ah, well, you're just biased in favor of him because you support him. Of course, you want him to be on the ballot. If you're opposed to him and you've been opposed to him for years and years and years, well, then people are going to say, well, of course, you're opposed to his being on the primary ballot. Now, that isn't to say that everybody who is a Democrat thinks this is a good call. There are plenty of Democrats who are saying, actually, this is not how to do things. Let's beat Trump at the ballot box. But then here's the thing. It's just what is their mechanism? If their mechanism is just not allowing him to be on the primary ballot in the first place, what's scaring them is that that would come across, that is gonna come across to the American people as election interference, which it is. It's out in the open, fraud. It's out in the open, controlling the outcome of the election by taking the front runner of the opposing political party out of the equation and saying, "You, you can't even run. You're not even allowed to run. Well, but why? right? If this has been an out-and-out civil war, it's been a very tame one. Uh, Some people have likened it to a cold civil war, but that's not the same thing as the first civil war in the 1860s where you had thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of men on both sides dying bloody, violent, painful deaths on battlefields across the U.S., For us to compare the upset and the disruption of Trump's rhetoric to that is irresponsible. It's just plain silly. But then again, what was I talking about just previously with regards to the herniated disc thing? When you have pain, it can be easy to be swayed in ways that you shouldn't. Your judgment can be unduly influenced to where you're not saying things that are true. Because you're just hurting. If you're not disciplined, if you're not self-controlled, you could be saying things that you shouldn't be saying that are not accurate just because you're lashing out. Or it could be that you have misattributed your discomfort. And I think that's what a lot of Democrats and a lot of establishment Republican types, the rank and file types, have done is they've misattributed their discomfort. They built their lives around the presumption that not only... Is our current progressive paradigm normal? It's good and it's healthy and it's preferable. In fact, it's the best thing. It's not just an okay thing. It's not just tolerable. It's the best thing. And what Trump did in disrupting both establishment Republicans and also Democrats, especially the far left Democrats, is he made a claim that was very upsetting that I think threw the backs out of a lot of folks, metaphorically. And so whether he's on the primary ballot or he's not on the primary ballot, a lot of the coverage of this in the media, a lot of the discussion around this on social media and in real life, and yes, now also in the courts, one lawsuit after another, after another, after another, another, one legal action after another, after another, after another. A lot of this noise is really just people hurting At the thought that the way they conceived of our country and how they just kind of took for granted that progressivism is where it's at, they're very upset that that may in fact be totally fatuous. That may be untrue because if that's untrue, it's not just relevant to the direction that the country goes. It's also very relevant to the choices they've made in their own personal lives and the choices that they would continue on making in their personal lives if... Those choices are valid. Just take the threat of Roe v. Wade being overturned in the first place, before it was overturned last summer. The prospect of it being overturned was very scary for people who might suddenly find that they had an unplanned pregnancy and that was not an option available to them to relieve themselves as they see it of the responsibility of raising a child. Uh, Maybe getting married. To the person that they had this child with, but then also raising this child one way or the other. Even the prospect of having to change their lifestyle and change the way that they approach the opposite gender, the way that they recreate, <laughs> uh, what they do with their free time, how they relate to the activities and the lifestyles that are conducive to pregnancy and lead to pregnancy. You know, all of that, it was so upsetting and it was so scary that whether or not they wanted an abortion, the thought that they would have to change their lifestyle and change their priorities is really what upset them. Take that just for one example, and a very important example, where many pundits and commentators have said this last election was a referendum on the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's what the Democrats made it about. And that was a winning issue. It was more of a winning issue for the Democrats than was anti-wokeness for Republicans or the economy for Republicans, where we find ourselves is because we've been so addicted to pleasure as a people, when we start to feel discomfort or even pain, or even there's the prospect of feeling pain and suffering, whether the suffering is for a good cause or it's long overdue, if we've been addicted to the pleasure, what you're seeing now is how people respond at the threat of the pleasure going away, and that is what the threat is. That's how the Democrats have been campaigning on these things. The pleasure is going to go away, you know. Everything from the 1960s forward, in the way of the sexual revolution and feminism and radical egalitarianism—not just access to abortion, but also access to contraceptives and everything that that opens up for both men and women, as far as being able to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, and not worry about it. The claim from the Democrats is. That's what it means to be human. That's a fundamental human right. That's what it means to be a human and to have human rights is that you can abort the baby if in you're having casual sex and engaging in hookup culture, if you get pregnant and you don't want to raise the child, well, then don't worry about it. But that is to say that a much more fundamental paradigm is jeopardized. The pain that people are feeling, the fear or the anger that people are feeling isn't first and foremost about what Trump did and didn't say leading up to January 6th. January 6th is just a convenient prop. It's just an excuse because what they were really afraid of is that the pleasure would go away, the good times would go away and never come back again, and that pain would come in where there was formerly pleasure. And I think one of the failures of Republicans and conservatives in messaging about these things and helping the American people to know what is good and what they should choose, what would be wise to choose in not just rejecting Democrats but then also in electing Republicans, uh, what the Republicans have failed to do in the messaging is make the case for a more abiding pleasure to be had in doing things the right way and doing what is good being lovers of good instead of lovers of pleasure. The Democrats have been campaigning on being lovers of pleasure and then saying that that's good. And the Republicans maybe have been saying, ah, but that's not right. You have to go the rest of the way and not be so embarrassed about where these ideas come from. That what is good is what God says is good. And that we are designed in such a way as to have our fullest joy when we're living as God designed us to live. When we're approaching life in all of its glorious complexity and richness and diversity, yes, all those are good things. Don't let the left have diversity as if they invented it. No, no, no. But when you approach life with all of its possibilities, believing that what God says is good is good, what God says is true is true, you will have a deeper and fuller and more abiding joy and pleasure. In life, And actually, ironically, it may be that the pain a lot of us are feeling is the result of pursuing pleasure in the wrong way, and not according to what God says is good, but according to whatever's going to be transgressive, because we've been tricked into supposing that that's liberation, but really it's just a satanic kind of liberation. We'll liberate ourselves from God telling us what to do. Oh, you can't tell me what to do. I do what I want. The messaging has failed, I think, in this regard, from Republicans, in large part because the Republicans themselves aren't even thinking of it in those terms. And insofar as it looks to undecided voters, and it looks to a lot of people in the middle who don't pay close attention to these things, who are fairly low information, it looks to them like it's just an arm wrestling contest over who gets to be in charge, who gets to make the rules and profit from it. If it's just that, well then... For the ruling class, there's no excuse for lecturing the rank and file, the lower class and the middle class people or the people who were formerly until the middle class was obliterated from 2008 to the present. It's not going to cut it. It's not going to be credible for the middle class to be lectured to by elite establishment Republicans about doing what's right just for goodness sake, if actually this is just a thin veneer of respectability and what's behind it is they're as corrupt as the Democrats. And that too, right? That too is what's at stake here with regards to Trump being on the ballot or not being on the ballot, who will actively or passively cooperate with the destruction of his candidacy if he's threatening their status quo Whether or not he's doing so for a good cause, because actually this is unjust, this is fraudulent, what's been going on, it's been corrupt, it's been the taking of bribes, it's been cutting of deals, it's been selling out the American people, it's been making us all less safe, less prosperous, except for the very few people who give and take bribes, they win, it's amazing how much they win, how wealthy they get, how powerful, how influential, how unaccountable they can be, if there's pain in agreeing with Trump or if the other side is promising greater pleasure to be had, even just in the short term from giving them what they want, agreeing with them, or at least not opposing them. We need to be thinking on a deeper level than just pain and pleasure or else we are going to come to a very, very bad end. And basically we will be under the control of whoever can even just create the perception that this or that will be painful or pleasurable. It doesn't even have to be true, right? They can get us to avoid doing things that are in our best interest by lying to us and saying, "Oh, that's going to be painful. You don't want that. That's going to be uncomfortable. You don't want. You don't want to do that." Uh, where is it written that we should avoid at all costs discomfort and pain? Uh, for that matter, where is it written that we should pursue at all costs pleasure in the short term? And isn't it the case? Shouldn't it give us pause how this has historically gone? If deferring or delaying gratification in many cases at many times leads to greater pleasures, greater joys in the long run. Now, this is like the marshmallow test at what I'm talking about here. If I were to repeat the experiments that formed the basis of the book, the marshmallow test, and I got you, not children, but you into a room. And I set a plate with a marshmallow, a nice, big, juicy, delicious looking marshmallow. I set that in the middle of the table and I said, okay, I'm going to walk out of the room. Don't eat this marshmallow. And if you don't eat it, by the time I come back, you'll get two marshmallows. If I told you that, and you're an adult, right? You pay taxes, you go to work, you have a job, you have a nine to five, maybe some overtime as well. You have a wife or kids, or since some portion of my audience is women, the majority is men, just to be honest. But maybe you have a husband, uh, ladies. The marshmallow may be like, yeah, whatever. What's the big deal? To a kid, the marshmallow is like, wow, it looks so delicious. I love sweets. Oh, man, you know how to get me. Ah, marshmallows. What is our marshmallow? That's what we should be asking. And is our marshmallow too often put in the middle of the table and we're told, yeah, don't worry about getting two marshmallows later. Just take the one now. And all the while, the person who's supposed to be conducting this experiment objectively, disinterestedly, the person who pretends that they're there for our sake, really, they're trying to get us to eat the first marshmallow so they don't have to give us the second marshmallow so that all of those extra marshmallows can be given to somebody else. Maybe you export them. Or maybe you bag them up and you give them to somebody who donated to you or helped you get the job some other way. You know, that's what we're dealing with here. And if we're not paying any attention, we're going to suffer. That's not wise. And it's not responsible. If we are paying attention, but we're paying attention on a very superficial level, and we just take for granted that we're always being told the truth, as long as the source of our information is more traditional mainstream, then we're being foolish those may be captive institutions, and you should know, you should figure out, okay, how do I verify? How do I test whether these are captive institutions? Yeah, the name above the door is still the same as it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but do I actually know why this institution is, humanly speaking, credible? More credible than the one across the street, the one in the next town over, the one on the other side of the country? I mean, those are the kinds of questions that if we want to be wise about this, we have to at a patient and intentional pace, be willing to explore the answers for beyond who is and isn't allowed on the ballot in 2024. This is so much bigger than who's elected president. It really gets to what's the basis? What is the basis for us forming judgments and participating? And are we participating? Are we forming judgments actively, or are we just passive recipients of other people's prepackaged judgments? Is that so wise? Is that so safe? Are they necessarily, if they don't love the Lord their God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and they don't love their neighbor as themselves, or they don't feel any special duty to that, or if they do, what God says about how to do it doesn't enter into the equation. We should be careful about letting other people prepackage our conclusions and our judgments and do all of the vetting for us. Because it may be that the equivalent of throwing your back out and having a slipped disc is what we're dealing with. It may be that we're feeling pain because we were sitting around too much. We weren't especially wise, and it doesn't mean that we were being wicked. It just means we were being simple. But once you've hurt your back, for instance, for example, in our metaphorical case here, it behooves you, to figure out what to do to not make the matter worse, not make the problem worse. For instance, maybe don't carry a lazy boy up the stairs, like I did recently. For our last story, though, or our last subject, perhaps would be a better way to put it, let's turn our attention again to neoconservatism. We talked a bit about it in our last episode But we haven't talked a lot about this subject, generally speaking, on this podcast. I think it would be good for us to delve into it more deeply in the future, especially with the 2024 election year right around the corner. I mean, we're just a couple of days from 2024, January 1st, not that far away. Neoconservatism over at Wikipedia, we'll start there because this is a pretty good Measure of consensus across the internet, especially what liberals will consent to because Wikipedia leans left, in case you haven't noticed. But if you hear the term neocon, if you've heard that term and you weren't really sure what a neocon is, how to define neocon, what differentiates a neoconservative from a traditional conservative, this, I hope, will be helpful in explaining the difference and the distinction. At Wikipedia, the introductory section reads as follows. Neoconservatism is a political movement that began in the United States and the United Kingdom during the 1960s during the Vietnam War among foreign policy hawks who became disenchanted with the increasingly pacifist Democratic Party and with the growing new left and counterculture of the 1960s, particularly the Vietnam protests. Neoconservatives typically advocate the unilateral promotion of democracy and interventionism in international affairs grounded in a militaristic and realist philosophy of peace through strength. They are known for espousing disdain for communism and political radicalism. Many adherents of neoconservatism became politically influential during the Republican presidential administrations of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, peaking in influence during the administration of George W. Bush when they played a major role in promoting and planning the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Prominent neoconservatives in the George W. Bush administration included Paul Wolfowitz, Elliot Abrams, Richard Perle, and Paul Bremer. Although U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld had not self-identified as neoconservatives, they worked closely alongside neoconservative officials in designing key aspects of George W. Bush's foreign policy, especially in their support of Israel, promotion of American influence in the Arab world, and launching the War on Terror. Bush administration's domestic and foreign policies were heavily influenced by major ideologues affiliated with neoconservatism, such as Bernard Lewis, Lulu Schwartz, Daniel Pipes, David Horowitz, Robert Kagan, etc. Critics of neoconservatism have used the term to describe foreign policy and war hawks who support aggressive militarism or neo-imperialism. Historically speaking, the term neoconservative refers to those who made the ideological journey from the anti-Stalinist left to the camp of American conservatism during the 1960s and 1970s. The movement had its intellectual roots in the magazine Commentary, edited by Norman Podharitz. They spoke out against the New Left and in that way helped define the movement. Now, that's the intro. There's much more here, even just at Wikipedia. and I'm sure there's much more to the subject besides what's at Wikipedia. But I want to read just even the first paragraph, maybe the second as well, of the next section titled Terminology, or that's the heading is Terminology at Wikipedia. Here's what we find there. The term neoconservative was popularized in the United States during 1973 by the socialist leader, Michael Harrington, who used the term to define Daniel Bell, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and Irving Kristol, whose ideologies differed from Harrington's. The neoconservative label was used by Irving Kristol in his 1979 article, Confessions of a True Self-Confessed Neoconservative. His ideas have been influential since the 1950s when he co-founded and edited the magazine Encounter. Now, who is Irving Kristol? Let's hop over to his Wikipedia page and let's read a little bit about him. Irving William Kristol, January 22nd, 1922, September 18th, 2009 was an American journalist who was dubbed the godfather of neoconservatism as a founder, editor, and contributor to various magazines. He played an influential role in the intellectual and political culture of the latter half of the 20th century. After his death, he was described by the Daily Telegraph as being, quote, perhaps the most consequential public intellectual of the latter half of the century, end quote. Crystal was born in Brooklyn, New York, the son of non-observant Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, Bessie Mailman and Joseph Crystal. He graduated from Boys High School in Brooklyn, New York in 1936 and received his BA from the City College of New York in 1940, where he majored in history. In college, he was a member of the Young People's Socialist League and was part of a small but vocal group of Trotskyist anti soviets who later became known as the New York intellectuals. It was at these meetings that Crystal met historian Gertrude Himmelfarb, that's quite a name, whom he married in 1942. They had two children, Elizabeth Nelson and Bill Crystal. During World War II, he served in Europe in the 12th Armored Division as a combat infantryman. <clears throat> okay, so there is Irving Crystal. You can see there are some influences, being a journalist, being the son of non-observant Jewish parents from Eastern Europe, being a socialist in his younger days, being from New York, you see a lot of these influences coming together that helped to make a man palatable to a broad spectrum of Americana from you know 1940, what have you, to the end of the century. Uh, there's going to be a lot of boxes checked In potential readership, other people being open to the ideas of somebody like Irving Crystal, just with his background, just with those being influences and factors for him, things that he was familiar with. Now, Irving Crystal aside, let's talk about his son, Bill Crystal, and we'll go over to the Wikipedia page. For Bill Crystal. Here we find William Crystal, born December 23rd, 1952. He is an American neoconservative writer, a frequent commentator on several networks, including CNN. He was the founder and editor at large of the political magazine, The Weekly Standard. Crystal is now editor at large of the center right publication, The Bulwark, and has been the host of Conversations with Bill Crystal, an interview web program. Since 2014, Crystal played a leading role in the defeat of President Bill Clinton's health care plan and advocating the U.S. invasion of Iraq. He has been associated with a number of conservative think tanks. He was chairman of the New Citizenship Project from 1997 to 2005. In 1997, he co founded the Project for the New American Century, PNAC, with Robert Kagan. He is a member of the Board of Trustees for the Free Market Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, a member of the Policy Advisory Board for the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and a director of the Foreign Policy Initiative. He's also one of the three board members of Keep America Safe, a national security think tank co-founded by Liz Cheney and Deborah Burlingame and serves on the boards of the Emergency Committee for Israel and of the Susan B. Anthony List as of 2010. Crystal is a critic of former President Donald Trump. Hmm a supporter of the Never Trump movement, and a founder and director of Defending Democracy Together, an advocacy organization responsible for such projects as Republicans for the Rule of Law and the Republican Accountability Project. Now, we'll just stop right there. That's quite enough for us to get a flavor of Bill Kristol as well, and we know who his father was, and we know something about neoconservatism now. We start to see in Bill Kristol's write-up on Wikipedia, the way that neoconservatism collides with this idea of make America great again, and in particular, the person of Donald Trump. When you understand that neoconservatism got its start in folks on the left decades and decades ago, feeling like they couldn't be part of the Democratic Party anymore. They couldn't consider themselves to be of the left anymore given how many of their fellow Democrats were espousing pacifist positions relative to the Soviet Union, relative Vietnam. When you understand that a lot of neoconservatives really were leftists, they just were anti-Stalin leftists several decades ago, you start to appreciate how neoconservatism Is actually an earlier form of this current anti-woke coalition. And what do I mean by that? Let me explain briefly. What the Soviet Union was decades ago in its heyday during the Cold War, what the Soviet Union was for folks across the political spectrum in terms of being a unifying enemy, wokeness is now. But that doesn't mean that everybody who's opposed to wokeness, so-called, is actually on the same page as far as what else, right? What instead? What, What if wokeness is actually not so good and this diversity, equity, inclusivity bandwagon is really just cultural Marxism, what are we going to be about instead? That is to say, if Bill Maher, is critical of wokeness, and I am also critical of wokeness, that does not mean that we are in agreement, let's say, for instance, about Mike Johnson, current Speaker of the House, and his very vocal Christian faith as being a very vocal conservative Christian. Well, similarly, you hear recently some very conservative Christians online complaining about this Real Women of America calendar being put out by a supposedly anti-woke conservative beer company to push back on Bud Light using Dylan Mulvaney as a spokesperson. And I see in my Instagram feed, I see on not the be pushback that, hey, this is not what we're trying to conserve. What are you guys trying to conserve that you think this is conservative? You're trying to conserve the 1990s. You're trying to conserve basically a secular consensus of what it means to be a conservative, you may be trying to conserve neoconservatism, really. That may be what this actually represents. And this is, yeah, if this is what a conservative is, then I, I don't want to be a conservative. This is not what I signed up for. I'm not for this, because I'm a Christian. If that's what a conservative is, then I guess I don't even know what I am. I'll just be a Christian, I'll just go to church, and I'll just focus on the family, and I'll just stay out of all this on your own heads, be it. This isn't going to be successful. Well, but wait a second though, right? If this is what conservatism is, that needs to be explored further. Take Bill Kristol, for instance. For example, a very prominent neoconservative writer from Wikipedia, mind you. His political party before 1980 was the Democrat Party. He was born in 1952, which is to say, Until he was round about 27, 28 years old, he was a Democrat. His neoconservative father raised a Democrat. But then from 1980 to 2020, and I didn't say to the present, I said 1980 to 2020, Bill Kristol, this prominent neoconservative, was a Republican, past tense, former Republican. From 2020 to the present, he's been a Democrat, which is to say, this is... A large part, this is a big reason why so many actual conservatives get confused and they get frustrated about why the Republican Party shoots itself in the foot. Why do you have so many Republicans who they run and campaign as a Republican, they get elected as a Republican, we expect good things from getting a Republican majority, and then they get in office and they're more apt to make deals with the Democrats. They're more apt to negotiate and be bipartisan and vote with the Democrats than they are to vote with their fellow Republicans. They're not conservatives, but they're Republicans. This is a large part of why that happens and how that happens. That over the last several decades, you had a lot of former Democrats who weren't comfortable with the far left of the Democrat Party, but that was it, right? They didn't like the authoritarianism of the far left, in the person of Stalin, for instance, for example. They were very uncomfortable with that. They were very opposed to that, very anti that. And because the Democrat Party had, by and large, given itself over to the radical left, the far left, and was willing to flirt with communism, even, and enable communism around the world, around the globe, by way of pacifism, by way of more of a containment strategy, but then Not really, you know, painting the communists always as the oppressed in media and in speeches or portraying the communists as the victims and America, as the aggressor, as the bad guy. It's, you know, all capitalist America, conservative Christians in America who are the problem in the world. They weren't comfortable with that. But that did not mean that they were conservatives all of a sudden. To say that they were neoconservatives is to say that they were for conserving progressivism over and against communism. But that's like saying, oh, I'm anti-woke. Oh, you too? All right, let's work together to oppose wokeness, but then you're Bill Maher and I'm Garrett Mullet. (laughs) You know, we may agree in the sense of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But then when it comes to actually making decisions that are going to be successful moving forward, I think this is a large part of why Republicans have had such a difficult time casting a positive vision because you'll get big donations coming in for the kind of Republican who supposedly can win and who could supposedly be successful in a general election. And very often that kind of a Republican is the kind who is going to be very progressive and they're kind of conservatism is going to be the kind of conservatism that conserves much of, most of, the progressive status quo, whatever it's come to be. See also David French. This isn't just the secular conservative types. This is also the pseudo-conservative American evangelicals. Their doctrine is good on paper. They say they're orthodox. They say they hold to the traditional doctrine of the Christian faith. But then A few years down the road from Obergefell v. Hodges and their tune totally shifts from we should be opposed to so-called marriage equality, we should be opposed to gay marriage because of all of these reasons, because it's unprecedented, it's going to be hugely destabilizing, it's going to devalue traditional marriage, it's going to devalue heterosexual marriage, monogamous marriage, marriage for life between a man and a woman, their tune totally shifts a few years down the road, and they say, well, now we've got to conserve Obergefell v. Hodges because this is just the world that we live in. It would be too disruptive. And that is very appealing. That kind of a messaging is very appealing to a broader swath of American people because it's painful to have the disruption of, oh, no, 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 we need to roll this back. Oh, no, 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 this is not progress. This has done a tremendous amount of harm. Even if it has done a tremendous amount of harm, What was put in place on the demand and the chicanery of progressives, especially Democrats, but also neoconservatives, Uh, whatever was put in place, it may have done a great deal of damage, but the claim is even more damage will be done undoing what the progressives have put in place. Yeah, the public schools may suck. (laughs) They may be terrible, but it would be even more sucky. It would be even more dangerous. If we supported school choice and then moms and dads could send their kids to you know, private schools or they could homeschool, then that would be even more disruptive. And there's a fear, really genuinely, that the disruption will get blamed on you if you're in favor of the disruption. And we see exactly the sort of a person who proves that fear, but then is it, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, Trump— disrupts. And then Bill Kristol, for instance, or Liz Cheney, for instance, prominent neoconservatives, they say, well, if Donald Trump is the future of the Republican Party, I'm just going to leave the Republican Party and become a Democrat again. Because, oh, by the way, they were Democrats before. So it was never really, really diehard Republicanism in them. It was more so they didn't feel at home in the Democrat Party anymore. And now they don't feel at home in the Republican party. And so now they're like, "Ah, well, then we're going to take our ball and go home. We're going to work against the Republicans. If you Republicans are going to be like this, a lot of Americans in the middle need to be very careful and very intentional, paying attention to what is true, regardless who's saying it or who's disagreeing with it. What is good, regardless the promise of pleasure being made to do something else or the promise of pain, the threat of pain, it should be said, if you do what is good. We need to be more focused on what is objectively true and what is objectively good. And the only way we can know what is objectively true and good, it's not by just looking back a few decades, like say, for instance, the 1990s. Hey, if we just imitate the 1990s, remember how prosperous we were, remember how much abundance there was, remember how good the economy was doing in the 1990s. Yeah, we just need to get back to Gingrich's, you know, contract with America. That kind of republicanism. That's the winning ticket. It's the economy, stupid. Remember that? Yeah, that was great. Those were the days, my friend. Way better than Jimmy Carter. Oh, man, Jimmy Carter was just the worst. And then Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan got in there. Okay, Ronald Reagan is dead. And he's not coming back. And even Ronald Reagan, I'm sorry to say, had his own pockmarks When it came to his track record, he, you can credit or blame, depending on if you think this was such a good thing for no fault divorce and no fault divorce was such a convenient addendum to the sexual revolution. It did a tremendous amount of damage. And he's the one who got the ball rolling in the state of California, no fault divorce and the great society program of LBJ and the sexual revolution, hugely Impactful to the course of American politics and American culture for the last 65 years. And we have an opportunity with the baby boomers passing away, getting too old to cling to high office or work in prominent positions of authority in media or in political parties and think tanks. You see a lot of that as well. Very influential. These think tanks come up with what they think is very clever. They hand it off to the political parties, and the political parties say, okay, this is what we expect. This is the winning strategy. We're all going to get on board with this. And if it's godlessness, well, I guess we'll all be godless together, and that'll make it successful because we're Americans. Damn it. That's a whole lot of folly. I think what we're dealing with right now is the equivalent nationally of what I'm suffering personally (laughs) with this herniated disc. And you start to feel better for a little bit. And then you say, oh, I'm going to carry this lazy boy up the stairs. I can do anything, right? I'm feeling better. But wait a second. What if you just set yourself back? You would have been recovering and you probably should change up some of your life choices and your maybe activity level uh, routine so as to not throw your back out again with a coughing fit. Yeah, maybe, Maybe do that. Focus on that and really healing up. Instead of I start to feel a little bit better and then I overdo it because I'm not being particularly wise. As Americans, we probably don't want to hear this, but we need to just take the L's for a little bit if we want to ever have victories again. And what I mean by that is don't embrace decline, like Ron DeSantis' slogan, you know, decline is a choice. Well, yeah, but it's not always as clear-cut as that. Nobody's coming out as... politician or as a party or as a news organization or as a journalist and saying, let's choose to lose. More so, it's stubbornness. It's a stubborn refusal to admit that what we've been doing has been hurting us. What we've been not doing, what we've been refusing to do has been hurting us. And so you have to be willing to admit, and this is the the biggest weakness of Donald Trump is he said publicly, he does not admit that he has had anything to repent of. Ooh, whoa whoa, okay, that's not Christianity, though. If We say we have not sinned. We make God out to be a liar. We are liars, and the truth is not in us. Of course you've sinned. That's a bad example. Just because we might agree about being opposed to the woke business and neoconservatism, that does not mean that this is healthy (laughs) for your most diehard fans and followers to emulate, like that's what's going to make America great again. If we refuse to admit that we've ever sinned and that we need the forgiveness and grace of God, we have to turn away from our sins as individuals and as a people or else it's just a question of when and how and from whom and where we will destroy ourselves. Speaking personally, I know enough about neoconservatism to recognize that it's been a substitute and a very poor substitute for actual conservatism. It's been the fox guarding the hen house as far as the republic, but also the republican party. It seems to me we're going to have to give up on the neoconservatism and really ask, okay, instead of just saying, you know, if this is conservatism, well, then I'm not a conservative, we need to ask the question, is this conservatism? What does it mean to be a conservative? Is there a goodness to conserving what has been passed down to you, what you have inherited, is that inherently wise, according to God? Is that noble? Is that virtuous? Is that going to have a good effect? Is that even righteous, perhaps? Not just wise, but godly. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.